On April 27, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted Beyond Ideology, a conversation on race, violence, and justice. The event included commentary from Jelani Cobb, professor of history and director of the Institute for African American Studies at the University of Connecticut, also a contributor to The New Yorker and a recipient of the 2016 Jay College of Criminal Justice Trailblazer Award. Cobb appeared alongside Thomas Apt, senior research fellow and adjunct lecturer with the Harvard Kennedy School and former deputy secretary for public safety for New York State. The dialogue centered on new pathways for addressing some of the most sensitive and polarizing issues in criminal justice today. It was moderated by Leah wright Rigger, assistant professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Thank you everyone to coming out in the midst of um, another busy, busy day, busy time of the year. Um, I'm Leah wright Rigger. I'm an assistant professor of public policy here at the Kennedy School. Um, and I'd just like to welcome you to our series um, on race in American politics. Uh, so can everyone hear me? Just wanna make sure, thanks. So I have the pleasure of introducing two people today who um, probably, if I think about it, really don't need any introduction. Um, we are gonna be talking, I think, about race, violence, um, and ideology. And it comes from, I think, somewhat of an unusual place or an unusual um, event, which I will let the panelists tell you a little bit more about. Um, but first, I wanna introduce you to Jelani Cobb. Um, William Jelani Cobb is an associate professor of history and director of the Africana Studies uh, Institute uh, at the University of Connecticut. He specializes in post-Civil War African-American history, 20th century American politics, and the history of the Cold War. He is the recipient of fellowships from the Fulbright and the Ford Foundation, um, and many, many, many awards. <laughs> Professor Cobb is the author of The Substance of Hope, Barack Obama and the Paradox of Progress, and To the Break of Dawn, a freestyle on the hip-hop aesthetic. Um, the latter of which was a finalist for the National Award for Arts Writing. His collection, The Devil and Dave Chappelle and Other Essays, was also published in 2007. He is the editor of the Essential Herald Cruise, uh, Essential Herald Cruise A Reader. Born and raised in Queens, New York, he was educated at Jamaica High School, Howard University in Washington, D.C., and Rutgers University, That's where good. he received That's his good. doctorate in American uh, history. Um, but I do have to say uh, the latter uh, part, which is that uh, Jelani's articles and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, where he is a contributor staff writer? Staff writer. Staff, staff writer. Um, the Daily Beast, The Washington Post, Essence, Vibe, The Progressive, and TheRoot.com. Um, he has contributed to a number of anthologies. Um, he has also been featured as a commentator on MSNBC, National Public Radio, CNN, Al Jazeera, CBS News. The list goes on and on. Um, and then also, uh, Jelani will be joining the Columbia University School of Journalism as a full-time faculty member starting in the fall. He's also working on a documentary on Newark, which I'm sure he'd be happy to tell you about, um, especially if asked. So if we could have just a quick round of applause for Jelani Cobb. Uh, next up, we have Thomas Apt. I wanna make sure I'm saying that right, okay. Perfect. Um, who's a senior research fellow for the Innovation and Citizen Security Project with the Growth Lab at the Center for International Development at Harvard University and the Harvard Kennedy School. He is a former senior research fellow and adjunct lecturer in public policy with a program in criminal justice uh, policy and management, um, also at the Kennedy School. 
He also serves as the research director for the Evidence-Informed Violence Reduction Project funded by the United States Agency for International Development's Central America Regional Security Initiative. So USAID, C-A-R-S-I, wow. Um, Thomas teaches and studies the use of comprehensive evidence-informed approaches to reducing gun gang and youth violence, among other topics, and brings a wealth of experience in the crime, safety, and justice sectors from both a policy and practice perspective. Now, before joining the PCJ, Tom, uh, Thomas served as Deputy Secu uh, Secretary for Public Safety to Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York, where he oversaw all criminal justice and homeland security agencies, including the divisions of correction and community supervision, criminal justice services, homeland security and emergency services, and the state police. Uh, during his tenure, Thomas also helped to establish the Governor's Commission on Youth Public Sa Safety and Justice, led the development of New York's GIVE, Gun Involved Violence Elimination Initiative, and created the Research Roundtable on Criminal Justice, a statewide criminal justice community connected, uh, connecting research with policy. Before his work in New York State, oh, okay, we'll skip the rest. Uh, there's a lot more, <laughs> and, and it's all very important. Um, so with that, I'm, I'm going to turn it over to Jelani and Thomas to give us a little bit more context um, about the event that we're having today. So thank you. Round of applause. Sure. Well, uh, first, I want to say uh, thank you to uh, Leah for the in extending the invitation, uh, and also to Thomas uh, for, uh, as well, being willing to participate in the dialogue. And so I think this dialogue has an interesting kind of origin story, which we can tell. Uh, and you know, I think that we have, we're in a point now where we have uh, kind of a common truism about the ways in which we can communicate and social media, and we're all being uh, connected in many ways and having dialogue in many ways, which is great. There are strengths that come with that, and there are also liabilities to that form of communication, uh, which I think is why we wound up having this dialogue, which is to say the short version, that's an elaborate way of saying that Thomas and I had a Twitter fight. Um, <laughs> but I think that it, there's a certain kind of combustible possibility when we're talking about uh, matters that are you know, extremely fraught and extremely complicated uh, and in which there's a great deal of emotional uh, resonance uh, as well as Im huge implications. Uh, and so uh, there's a great deal of emotional resonance, certainly a great deal of uh, social, great number of social implications uh, for the subjects that we're writing about. And uh, as it happened, I read uh, an interview that uh, Thomas had done uh, with his uh, co-author uh, in Vox about crime and the ways in which it is, what works in crime reduction and the ways in which it impacts uh, particularly communities of color. And the context for me personally is that I've been writing about these issues for a really long time, but most intensely for the last four years at The New Yorker uh, and covering things like Ferguson and having been to Ferguson five or six times and uh, covering Trayvon Martin and the trial, subsequent trial of George Zimmerman and being in Baltimore after Freddie Gray. And I've spent the past almost eight months now, I think, uh, in Newark, uh, working on a documentary, a collaboration between The New Yorker and Frontline about policing and police reform uh, in you know, the largest city in New Jersey. And so the point at which I read that article uh, was also a morning at which my best friend, my 
closest friend since childhood, who is now a counselor and therapist, uh, was spending his morning at a high school in Harlem doing uh, grief counseling for a group of teenagers, uh, many of whom were students he taught when he was uh, in the public school system in New York, but these were teenagers who had lost a classmate uh, the night before. A 15-year-old boy had been killed in East Harlem uh, as a result of gun violence, was shot fatally. And we'd had a conversation about what exactly you tell young people when they are um, grappling with something that we don't know how to explain ourselves. And so I think this is kind of the combustible combination I read Thomas's article and I went through the ceiling. Um, but uh, one of the things, I think, good things that did happen in the midst of this was that I uh, direct messaged him my phone number thinking he was not going to call. Uh, and he did call. Uh, and we had an exchange that went the opposite of the way that Twitter conversations tend to go, whereas Twitter conversations tend to go like this. Um, but interestingly enough, shocking or not, uh, the verbal conversation tended to go like this. Uh, in which we found that we were areas of commonality and things that we had uh, in, certainly in common in terms of our interests and research interests, but also the uh, kind of personal and emotional resonances that, that lead to doing this kind of work in the first place. And so that's, I think, the basis for the conversation. Uh, if you want to start with kind of your opening point, and I'll kind of go back to um, the points I had outlined here, if sure. that works for you. Mm -hmm. Sure. I think. Uh, so uh, can you hear me on the mic? Um, so I think that the subject of the uh, interview uh, with Herman Lopez was, uh, you know, uh, basically, we know a lot about how to reduce uh, urban street violence in the United States. Uh, but we essentially uh, don't do it, or we don't do as much of it as we could. And a lot of the article was uh, sort of devoted to discussing uh, the, the sort of politics of why that might not happen. And so, you know, I was talking about strategies that are available today without um, additional legislation, without significant new uh, amounts of funding, things like cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, which has been demonstrated effectively in many settings, but maybe most famously in Chicago's Becoming a Man program. Uh, focused deterrence, which got its start here with the Boston Ceasefire uh, project in the 90s, which has effectively been reducing gang homicide and sh homicides and shootings across the country. And uh, targeted, narrowly tailored policing strategies like hotspots policing, which don't over-police entire communities, but actually focus only on the places uh, that are most in need of attention and enforcement. So you know, these strategies are out there, but they're underfunded. And that leads to issues with sustainability, and that is, uh, leads to issues with replication and repeating them around the country. And so you know, I was sort of talking about some of the myths and distortions in our criminal justice uh, debate that we're having today and how uh, you know, the two sides, uh, if you want to sort of oversimplify them as conservative and progressive, often talk past each other and these sort of pragmatic nonpartisan solutions uh, get ignored. And, um, and one element of that conversation uh, is uh, race, and race is an area that I think we all know that we frequently 
uh, talk past one another. And if we can address the issue of race in a constructive way, uh, we can uh, improve that conversation, but we can improve a series of other broader conversations as well. And so in some ways, that was the sort of crux of, the, of uh, Jelani, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, of his concern with the article, uh, which was uh, that he, he I think the I think the impression that he got was that I like far far too many sort of conservative Fox News sort of Giuliani esque commentators was basically uh, sort of talking about black on black crime as a way to sort of change the subject in a broader debate about criminal justice reform and that certainly wasn't the case but his comments and our discussion afterwards really got me thinking. And it really got me thinking about uh, why was I misunderstood? And he had a, in, you know, in a host of, uh, you know, <laughs> I've never been criticized so beautifully. I mean, it was, it was, if you ever, you should follow him and, and find it because it was pretty, it was pretty brilliant. Um, the things, but he, one of the things he talked about was uh, sort of trying to preserve the notion of white innocence or uh, promoting white absolution. And I thought that was a very uh, interesting uh, concept. Um, you know, my background is that I've been working on these issues for at least two decades. Uh, I've worked on them in the courts. As a prosecutor, I've worked on them uh, in schools as a teacher. I've worked on them uh, for President Obama and for Governor Cuomo. Uh, I've counseled hundreds of victims. Uh, this is an issue that you know uh, I've dealt with on sort of all levels, personal, professional, uh, and so it's a, something that means a great deal to me. Um, but this concept. Uh, I think of white absolution really had, uh, there was something there. And I think that, uh, I think that sort of people, uh, you know, if you come from an economics background, you presume that people are rational and that they're self-interested. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, self-interested people uh, want as many privileges as, as possible and want as few responsibilities as possible. And, you know, white folks are no different than anybody else in that way. And there is, uh, and Jelani I think was responding to a real issue uh, among some people, and particularly among conservative commentators, to sort of want to turn the page on the issue of race uh, prematurely. And it's understandable why would they would want to do that. You can sort of enjoy all your racial privileges and have none of the uh, uh, responsibilities. And none of the responsibilities of broader, uh, of you know, remedying this racially disproportionate uh, system that we have. And so, many white people sort of want to say, "Look, you know, I'm not." They want to say it sort of individually and socially. They want to say socially, "Look, Obama is president. We're done here." And they want to say personally, uh, they want to say, "Look, you know, none of my descendants are slaveholders. Uh, I don't hate black people." I have black friends, and so this isn't about me. But of course, if you live in this society, it is about you. So, you know, one of the things that uh, really impacted me that Jelani said was, you know, are, are the people in these communities not citizens? 
And that was very powerful to me because that's something that once we got on the phone, we really, we really uh, agreed on, which is that what's happening, these high rates of victimization in uh, disadvantaged communities that are disproportionately people of color, you know, it should offend us uh, as Americans. It should be an insult to our patriotism, uh, whether you're black, brown, white, yellow, whatever. And, and so that really resonated with me. And it got me thinking about sort of a, uh, a quote that uh, uh, Rabbi Heschel said, which is that few are guilty, but all are responsible. And I believe that. And I believe that's generally true of many social problems we have. Obviously, the people who are guilty of gun violence are those who are pulling the trigger. And their numbers, thankfully, are relatively small. But the collective responsibility for this urban violence is so much broader. And I think that as a result of our conversation, I think one of the uh, things I will do in the future is we have to be careful when we discuss these issues about beginning with the responsibility of the black community. Because that's the issue that's constantly hit. And it implies that this is the fault and responsibility of the, these communities that are victimized by these issues. And I think while everyone is responsible, we should actually begin the conversation with the broader <coughs> responsibility of the, uh, of the power structure. And so um, that, was, that was one of my biggest takeaways. Yeah, so a point that I, I know is like a kind of hug. We're going to hug it out up here in a minute. <laughs> but, uh, one of the points I took from Thomas um, was this point about uh, the small number of people who are, who are committing violence and the ways in which this has a huge ripple effect. And interestingly enough, it dovetailed perfectly with what we were talking about in Newark, where Newark has been um, kind of campaigning, literally, the mayor uh, was talking about how 85% of the streets in the city of Newark have no violence. You can go on these streets uh, in the middle of the night, you can go out to your car, you can walk around, you can do whatever, and you're not going to, no harm will come to you. Um, but there are 15% of these streets, and then we find that 15% is an even smaller number, where there's violence concentrated, uh, and it has this huge ripple effect. And what it occurred to me was thinking about the Christopher Commission in the post uh, Rodney King riot Los Angeles where they said that they had the few bad apples problem um, in which a small number of bad police could create this huge ripple effect um, that had institutional implications broadly uh, and so it then brought to this thing saying okay there's a small number of people and there's a intermediate number of people who are affected in some way shape or form may or may not have the power to do anything about it, but they are the context in which this small number of people, uh, problematic people, thrive. And so I really started looking at these as kind of symmetries and saying there's an institutional problem, there's a community problem, and these problems look very similar. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I thought was interesting about the ways in which we approach this conversation uh, about this idea of absolution is that I think that it's very much uh, part of the political atmosphere and the cultural atmosphere that we exist in right now, uh, one of the kind of ways to step aside from crime and, and violence for a second, one of the most notable ways that we see this is that in 
the Brown versus Board of Education decision, very famously, uh, there were the uh, Kenneth and Mamie Clark doll tests, uh, in which they showed black children the, these dolls and uh, you know described the attributes of the black doll and described the attributes of the white doll. And overwhelmingly, they, they ascribed positive attributes to the white doll. Black children ascribed positive attributes to the white doll and very negative ones to the black doll that looked by implication like themselves. And this was an indictment of segregation. It was an indictment of Jim Crow. To the extent that we have this conversation now about quote unquote being smart being uh, as acting white, quote unquote, we point to that kind of blamelessly with, and with derision as an evidence of faulty <coughs> values among those people and those communities, as if it has no broader structure connected to it, and there's no broader lineage, and that if someone did in fact come to this conclusion, that there was no clearly legible way that we could understand the history as having implications for that kind of thought process. And so I think the same thing happens when we talk about violence and the context in which violence occurs. Uh, and so when we talk about the Kerner Commission uh, following the riots of 1965, 66, 67, uh, when the Kerner Commission uh, report came out, one of the first things that it says is that uh, what the larger society does not know, but what the ghetto can never forget, is that the larger society is deeply implicated in the problems of the ghetto. Now, if we take that in the opposite context and think about how Rudolph Giuliani responded uh, when questions of Baltimore came up and questions of uh, Eric Garner in Staten Island came up, uh, and he said, well, the police wouldn't have to be in these communities if you people weren't killing each other so much. Um, but this is the idea. He said this to Michael Eric Dyson, um, you know, professor, Georgetown professor, who to my knowledge has never killed anyone. Um, <laughs> so, but the idea is that by kind of racial implication, we're all responsible. But if, in fact, this is the case, it raises the question of why we would never point to the random person and say, what are you doing about meth in your community? Uh, because the question is unintelligible. We would never think to make a white person responsible for the actions of another random white person. So that's why I get to the idea about citizenship, saying we are either all collectively responsible for a question, for an issue, or none of us are. Um, now, of course, just by matter of survival and self-interest, people have taken up that burden. People have said, well, this pastor is going to speak out about this, or this person is going to do this, uh, simply shouldering the burden of saying that if, in fact, the uh, you know, garbage is not being picked up in your neighborhood, maybe we need to get together and form some kind of, if we can't rely on the, the state, you know, the structures that are supposed to do this, uh, as citizens of a particular city, then maybe we need to get together and sweep up or whatever it is that we can do to mitigate this in, a, in an individual sense. Um, and then we also talked about this, uh, the way in which this has been discussed. I think there's a kind of thing that, uh, from the outside looking in, it appears that African Americans are not concerned with so-called black-on-black violence. Um, but it's precisely that only from the outside looking in can that perspective be maintained, because there's an extraordinary amount of energy devoted to this question, even though it doesn't look the same. One tends not to protest criminals. Um, you protest, as the Constitution gives you the right, to petition your government. Uh, it is not prudent to protest murderers um, in any community. And so 
It's like, I heard this guy was shooting people. Let's go picket his house. Um, <laughs> it doesn't look the same way. But when people address issues of um, poverty, when people address issues of education, uh, when people address issues of civil rights, when people address issues of voting access and so on, it is with the underlying idea that you will kind of drain the pond in which these sorts of um, problems fester. Um, and the last thing I do uh, before we kind of open to more discussion is that uh, Thomas and I talked about, we, in the conversation, I mentioned a short story by Ernest Gaines, uh, who is a fiction writer, I love his work, and he published this story uh, either in 1964 or 1968. There were a couple of different dates for it. Um, and he said that um, he, it's a story called Three Men. Uh, and it is set in a prison in Louisiana, and it involves one uh, older man who is in a cell. This all takes place in a, a jail cell. Uh, an older man who has been going to prison for many years, a teenager who has just been arrested for a murder, uh, and a older black man who's gay, who is also in this cell. And the entire conversation takes place in the dialogue of what it means to be arrested, what it means to be black, and what it means to be in jail for killing another black person. And the kind of backdrop to what I want to read is that the young man turns himself in uh, after having committed this murder and at a party, he gets into a fight with another guy, stabs him, the guy dies, and he turns himself in because he knows that uh, he works for very powerful white people and they will get him out of jail, that he'll suffer no real consequences for it. So if he turns himself in, he hasn't killed a white person, uh, if he turns himself in, he'll, he'll get out. And this is the conversation that takes place between, between him and uh, Mumford, who's the older man who's in, who's in jail. <clears throat> he said, I, I got in, this is Mumford speaking, I got in on Saturday night, they keep me from Saturday till Monday. If it rained, they keep me till Tuesday. Don't want me to get out and catch cold, you know. Next Saturday, I'm right back. Can't stay out of here to save my soul. Places like these are built for you, Hattie said, not for decent people. Hattie is the gay man. Been going in and out of these jails here, I don't know how long, Munford said. 40, 50 years. Started out just like you. Killed a boy like you did last night. Killed him and got off. Got off scot-free. My pappy worked for a white man who got me off. At first, I didn't know why he had done it. I didn't think. All I know was I was free, and free is how I wanted to be. Then I got in trouble again, and again, they got me off. I kept getting in trouble, and they kept getting me off. Didn't wake up till I got nearly to be nearly as old as I'm now. Then I realized they kept getting me off because they needed a Munford Brazil. They need me to prove that they're human. Just like that, they need that thing over there. They need us. Because without us, they don't know what they is. They don't know what they is out there. Without us around, they can see us, and they don't know what they ain't. They ain't us. Do you see? Do you see how they think? I didn't know what they were talking about. It was hot in the cell, and he had started sweating. His face was wet except for that big scar. I was just laying there smooth and shiny. But I got, new, I got news for them. They, us. I never tell them that, but inside I know it. They, us, just like we is ourselves. It was kind of just grappling with the moral implications of this, of saying that 
what uh, Thomas has talked about with Jill Leoby um, in her book Ghetto Side, that it's possible for a community to be both over-policed and under-protected simultaneously. And I think that's one of the great points that she brings up, that this the police are an all-encompassing force in this small Louisiana town where this is set, but also the devaluation of this, the idea that black lives don't in fact matter, provide a context in which this kind of homicide can flourish. Just, just before we uh, get to the question, I just want to sort of uh, tell you a little bit about just my practical experience. Uh, you know, during the first uh, term of the Obama administration, I helped set up something that's called the National Forum on Youth Violence Prevention. It started with six cities, it's now 15 cities. Many of the cities, Detroit, New Orleans, Memphis, among the most violent in the United States. And we spent time in all of these cities meeting with cross-sections of groups, everything from kids to community activists to cops, the whole thing. And uh, I, did that, I did that work in the communities, but I was also talking with people in Congress and talking with people in the White House, and a big part of it was uh, budget. And, you know, I have to say that having sort of interacted with pretty much every community that relates to this, I have not found the problem to be African-American or Latino apathy mm -hmm. about this issue. I just have not seen that. You go to these communities, this is their number one issue. This is what they care about. The apathy lies elsewhere. Uh, and I think, and that's really um, uh, my major critique and what I hope to talk and write about in the future. Okay, so since we have so many people here, I think what we're going to do is just jump right into Q&A. Um, I just ask that we, you, when you ask your question, um, that you speak into the microphone, um, which is in the back. So hand up over here. Let's start right off. The event with uh, Tamir Rice, uh, the people who killed him, no convictions, no blame, no nothing. The city paying off but not admitting anything. What does this tell us about what's going on and the value of black lives? Um, I think it's, it's self-evident in some ways. Uh, but there uh, is another instance. To me, I spoke with Tamir Rice's mother, uh, and she pointed out that she was very disturbed by an incident in which was far, um, far more ambiguous than the circumstances in which her son died. Uh, and that is uh, an, incident, an incident in Texas that happened around the same time, wherein a white motorist was fleeing the police. Uh, two black officers were in pursuit. Uh, they opened fire on the vehicle, and his uh, son, who was about 10 years old, was in the back of the car and was killed. Uh, and those officers were arrested and charged immediately. Uh, and she said, when you reverse the roles in a situation in which the father had done something to certainly cause the suspicion that he was a danger to the public, uh, and when police opened fire, the same sort of carte blanche did not apply to them. Uh, and she was saying they had a very difficult time, she had a very difficult time reconciling that with what happened to her son. 
And so it's a complicated thing. Now, having talked to police union um, presidents and people who are, and police officers, lots of police officers, their idea is that, in, and one of the things that conservatives say, that, you know, that Thomas has pointed out as well, is that if you crack down you know, hard on police as a result of this, it demoralizes them and then places those communities at even more risk. Uh, and so if you arrest officers for kind of judgment call kinds of situations, uh, what you find is officers who are now more tepid in their approach to law enforcement and as a result communities that become less safe. But you know the complicating aspect of this, the complicating element of that is that on the other side if you need community investment, if you need community belief um, uh, or, or uh, their participation in your efforts to diminish crime, you move in the opposite direction. No one is going to talk to the police. Uh, and I've seen that with my own eyes in Newark, uh, where uh, police kind of show up on the scene of a homicide. People in the community are as antagonistic toward the police as they are toward the person who committed the homicide. And I've also seen, in another instance, a police officer shockingly walked into a housing project where there had been a homicide. I was kind of um, tailing him for the day. Uh, and people started coming up and talking to him. And I'd never seen anything like this. Someone said the guys who did it came from this part of town and so on. And she kind of stepped to the side and told him this. And um, as we were going back to his car, he said, do you know why, why that happened? And he said, I said, no. And he said, everybody here knows that I respect them. Um, and it was radically different because these were people who said, we don't want to be victims of homicide. We also don't want to further empower a police force that is antagonistic toward our community. And I think that those are the kind of interwoven dynamics that exist there. Thank you. Um, I don't know the writing of either of you, and I haven't followed this debate, so this is the first I've heard of it. But I'm, in a, I'm a little struck by, I'm a little perplexed, because uh, Thomas, you started off by talking about methods that you know work for street violence, and you mentioned things like cognitive therapy, I assume applied to kids at risk, kids of, at risk of being violent. And you started off with a number of absolutely shocking cases that have occurred over the last couple of years in the United States. And all of those that you cited were actually white on black violence, and in most cases they were actually white police, white public service, servants violence against black youth. So I don't see how your approaches are going to apply to this problem, unless you're going to do the cognitive therapy with the police force, which might be a good idea. So I, I would just like to get clarity if you're if we're talking about if you are both talking about the same thing. Well, I think I think that's a great question. I think that's precisely why we're doing this talk, which is uh, how can we promote a sort of and or conversation or a both and conversation instead of an either or conversation because far too many times these these issues that are quite interrelated are taken apart and often put at odds with one another you either care about police accountability and reform or you care about community violence and you're sort of placed into this box which is not accurate and, and also not consistent with the evidence. And I think one of the things, uh, as I sort of 
uh, I've been writing and debating about uh, the sort of alleged Ferguson effect, the homicide spike that began last year and is continuing into this year, places like Baltimore, St. Louis, Chicago, uh, Washington, D.C., and others. And uh, I don't sort of, uh, I, don't, I don't think there's uh, strong evidence for the uh, idea that if you criticize uh, police, then they, uh, then they simply stand down and then crime goes up. However, there is something going on here. And the, re the legitimacy of our social institutions, particularly our criminal justice institutions, matters. Both the perceived legitimacy and the actual legitimacy. There is a lot of evidence that shows that when communities, all things being equal, controlling for socioeconomic factors, have a lower view of the uh, police. They have uh, something that's called in the literature legal cynicism. There's higher rates of violence because they don't believe that the police are there to, to help them. Um, and so I think that one of the things, you know, I've, I've, my, my background is in evidence and is in policy. And so I sort of have a broader question to all of, to all of you and to Jelani and Leah, which is how do we have this conversation where we're not immediately set at odds with one another, and you know, uh, and and to promote, um, uh, in addition to the things that we believe ideologically, a lot of the sort of very pragmatic, non-ideological solutions that can help people in need right away. Hi. Okay. So, sort of building on that point, um, I was I, I really enjoyed that. The, that last question, because that was the thing that struck me at the beginning also, is that you were talking about two entirely different problems. I'm curious as to um, your work, whether or not any of the policies um, that you were studying, whether it, it did encompass, um, you know, what are the causes of that deep mistrust of the police, and what are some constructive ways, including police accountability, to improve the trust, right? Or does your work only focus on the you know, reduction of community violence without also trying to sort of correct the police accountability side to it? So like, does, does your work and um, do the structures that you, you know, institutions you work within, are they focused on this other element and yeah. how those things interact? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I would say that uh, the, the leading sort of uh, evidence-informed effort to address legitimacy is something that's called procedural justice. It was highlighted in the president's uh, 21st century uh, uh, policing task force in their list of recommendations is something that should be adopted. It's something that is a top priority of the current leader of the International Association of the Chiefs of Police. And uh, procedural justice it is something uh, that basically talks about uh, the most important thing uh, in terms of healing police community relationships is not a uh, fairness of end result, but a fairness of process. People need to believe that the process by which they are being policed um, or, uh, is fair and neutral, and so, so for instance, what and and if they believe that, compliance with the law goes up. Uh, and so, the power of this is basically saying that if 
police can communicate and act more fairly. So for instance, um, if, you're, if you have a traffic stop and uh, you're pulled over and you ask, why was I stopped? And the officer says, you know, shut up and give me your license. That's their legal right to do that. But that doesn't give you a good feeling about the overall process by which this is happening because they're acting, they appear to be acting arbitrarily. And so the better, uh, the better course is to say, I pulled you over because you rolled through a stop sign back there. We've been watching that intersection very closely. A young boy was killed there a few weeks ago. So we're really trying to get people to be safer around it. And, and what the research shows is that regardless of whether you get that ticket, you're going to feel better about that process. And the same is true of serious arrests. So that's one of the sort of most promising things. And, and one of the things that I, I wish we knew more in this national debate is that there are constructive things that we can be doing in this area that are not simply, um, that are not all about ideology. If we approach these things from a problem-solving mode, uh, we can have um, uh, we can have great success. I just uh, you know the point about the Kerner Commission, you know that's a good news bad news story. That uh, if we accept it at face value, that a few police officers are responsible for this uh, the overwhelming majority of misconduct, and that if we remedied you know if we addressed them, uh, that we could address that. the The broader question is okay, so it's a few officers. But that system is not policing those officers. Why is that? And so you have to uh, address that. But what I would suggest is, is that you don't, is that as we discuss these things, um, we don't sort of get bogged down in our single pet issue. The only thing that matters is you know, x. The only thing that matters is y. I can't listen to anything else until that is dealt with. So one of the other things, too, about the Ferguson report, for instance, is uh, when the Ferguson report, really good example of this, the two reports, um, the one report said, which the report that no one read, said that uh, Darren Wilson was likely acting in uh, good procedure. He had justification for opening fire on Michael Brown um, that afternoon on Canfield Drive. I gave that report to my students, um, and they all but threw it out the window. And then the second report that showed that the police department at Ferguson, in Ferguson, was effectively acting as a collection service. That was the report that everyone read. And those two things were related. That was why no one believed, uh, as a matter of fact, that the more egregious things uh, that, that had happened there, the hog tying of a young boy, the beating of a, a motorist um, in a jail and then charging him with destruction of public property for bleeding on the, their uniforms. Um, the sort of egregious behavior that happened in Ferguson explained everything about why people did not believe that Darren Wilson had acted properly uh, and were not prepared to believe that uh, Darren Wilson could possibly have acted properly in that one instance. Uh, and so it, these two things are interrelated. And so in a dialogue in which we, uh, you know, one of the uh, things that, that popped up in the kind of stream of op-eds that were kind of floating around in the Ferguson era 
was a kind of conservative astonishment at black people's reluctance to comply with police. <laughs> Say, well, why didn't you just listen? Because they do not represent the force of legitimacy in this community that they represent in your community. Because all sorts of things, uh, and I think in my instance, I said I have never uh, committed a crime. I was a graffiti artist as a teenager. Okay, I did that. And it was a hip hop era. I did, I did do that. Um, but I've never committed any significant crime. Uh, and I tell people all the time, I've never used any illegal drug. But I have had police officers pull guns on me twice before I was 21. Um, and then they say, well, why don't you comply with police? Well, because I don't know how this is going to turn out. Uh, and so I think that those two things, when you have police policing that delegitimizes itself, you then find yourself caught in a vice between the police and people who are in your community who, for very many complicated reasons, nonetheless pose a threat to you, will do harm to you. Uh, and I think that is the frustration in having this conversation about uh, a lack of attention to exactly how complicated this relationship is and how exactly how complicated these, compli these uh, calculations are for many African Americans. There. Well, you say you've had problems with the police, but I know I've been mugged three times and everyone was a black, so I think personal experience does have an influence over here. Uh, but you, when you try and portray this as, a, as simply a question of black versus white, we're losing the class dimension. Uh, class uh, has a great influence on people's attitudes and people's behavior and uh, on their location. So it makes it easy to uh, distract attention from class when you simply focus uh, solely and exclusively uh, on race. So I, I think there are other dimensions here that we have to consider. Uh, the same happens when you see violence uh, of police against blacks is a disproportional amount of publicity than when you have uh, violence of police against whites. So you can say, sure, there's a disproportionate amount of incidents between the police and blacks, but at the same time, there's a disproportionate amount of emphasis placed on those incidents uh, as opposed to when uh, the police uh, mistreat whites. So, I mean, this is what creates white backlash, I think. That there's too much emphasis oftentimes uh, on the fact that this is simply a social problem and uh, their personal experiences are being either segregated uh, in a different sense or uh, ignored altogether. Okay, so um, let me respond in kind. You've been mugged three times by black people and you know this is I suppose. Um, I won't hold against you the white people who Jim Crowed my parents um, and the white people who allowed my father to have a third grade education and I won't hold against you the labor union that didn't let him work, work uh, for them and I won't hold against you those white officers who pulled weapons on me as a young person. Um, and I won't hold against you the economic disparity between my neighborhood and those of whites who had similar income but still had housing values that were higher. And so what I find is when people kind of divert into class, class is very important, but what I also find is that when we divert into class, we go right back to this idea of white absolution, saying that a problem which with we are intimately familiar doesn't exist. We're simply focusing on the wrong thing. It's like a magician saying, look at what this hand is doing, not what this one is doing. And so in the matter of white backlash, it has nothing, it has absolutely nothing to do with African Americans. It has everything to do with the idea of white entitlement and the devalued currency of whiteness. And so if we're talking about this, you want to talk about class, certainly. 
let's talk about what Du Bois said about the white working class and how what their investment was in maintaining white supremacy in the South against their own economic interest for getting, gaining what he called a psychological wage, that they knew that they were better than black people, even if economically they were at the bottom um, period of the bottom part of the totem pole. And if we're talking about the difference between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, is Sanders saying early on with some kind of big lapses in terms of understanding how race works and how race complicates these matters, but nonetheless saying that class is an important dynamic, there are people being taken advantage of in America, which is empirically absolutely sound. And the kind of old style populism that Donald Trump has represented in siphoning off a legitimate resentment about class exploitation into racial resentments against people who are Muslim, people who are uh, Latin American, Latino, uh, and uh, any other population that he has ridiculed and uh, ostracized, which is many, probably too many for us to name here right now. And so when we're talking about this, for an African American who has a household uh, income of $100,000, but their neighborhoods have housing values of white people who make $70,000, there is the actual, tangible, empirically verifiable value associated with whiteness. And if we want to talk like the Communist Party in 1921, where the people who were from Russia who had no understanding of how American society operated, and that's the argument they were making about class, we can do that. I don't think we should ignore a century of American history that points us in a different direction. Other questions? I was wondering if you could address the issue of gender. Um, my youngest brother was killed in a drive-by when he was 15. I passed for white, I'm brown. Um, every one of my brothers, I'm the oldest of 10, have had bad experiences with the police. None of my sisters have, and that seems to cut across. And it feels like in the 40, almost 40 years since my brother died, not a lot has changed. That this conversation could have happened then with not a lot of difference? So, I mean, just if you look at the data, um, you know, uh, obvious, uh, or maybe it's, perhaps it's not obvious, but um, both here in the United States and across the globe, the overwhelming majority of perpetrators, when I say overwhelming, I mean 90% or so, 95% of so of the most lethal violence are men, uh, but men are also the most frequent victims of violence. Uh, there's a really uh, sobering statistic that combines um, youth, race, and uh, gender, which is the CDC data um, suggests that, or doesn't suggest, shows that for uh, uh, young white men and boys aged 10 to 24, homicide is the third leading cause of death. Um, for Latino uh, young, and boys, young men and boys, same age group, uh, the uh, death rate is the second leading cause of death. For African American young men and boys, it's the leading cause of death, and it causes more deaths than the nine other leading causes combined. Uh, and uh, that's an incredibly uh, sobering uh, statistic. And, and just to sort of go back to the 
uh, previous question, um, we have to find a way uh, to account for race in these discussions and account for other factors as well. As, as well. It can't be an all or nothing discussion uh, because we will lose too much. It is empirically, I mean, there's been a recent study that just came out that shows if you compare, um, you know, uh, poor, working class, middle class, and upper class people, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, upper class African Americans uh, are, have a higher rate of incarceration than middle class whites or even working class whites. So race, race is, you know, empirically uh, making, uh, 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 making uh, a, a huge difference here. But of course, class is part of it. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, and one of the things as a professional, someone who's overseen a criminal justice, uh, a prison system, uh, who's helped oversee uh, a, a 6,000 person police agency, many of these things are also operational. The, they are about the capacity of the agency to improve. If the agency was simply better at doing its job, um, it would be less racially discriminant. And so you need to account for all of these things. And so, I mean, in some ways, the, the broader question I have is, um, if adding complexity can make us more effective in solving these problems, how do we do that in a way that uh, makes people feel recognized and, uh, and that their lived experience is heard? And you know, I also think it's important that we talk about the ways in which we can't isolate these things, that they go one and one. So we'll say that we know, and this is what my good friend Khalil Muhammad's work um, talks about. We talked about crime and violence in Philadelphia at the beginning of the 20th century, where there people are really concerned about Italian immigrants and all the homicides they're committing. Um, and after World War II, that's a conversation we would not have. We simply, it wouldn't be intelligible to us. Like, what do you mean? You know, Italians, Americans are, are like any other Americans. And he's saying, what happens in this interim period? And what happens with progressive, um, you know, political campaigns and social campaigns to change, you know, what really winds up being a uh, uh, environmental dynamic, environmental factors that lend themselves to violence and removing a population or facilitating the removal of a population from those environments. And we had this conversation now about African Americans, but race impacts the likelihood of people finding themselves in those environments. If those are low socioeconomic environments and the class is absolutely a factor, then race makes you predisposed to find yourself in that social class. So we can't kind of uh, remove ourselves from it. And so, but to your point about gender, here's, here's where it becomes really thick and really ugly. Um, and I can give you a popular culture reference for it and, um, and then we can kind of talk about the nuts and bolts of it. So, so last year there was a film that came out called Straight Outta Compton, uh, and it was hugely popular. Uh, it was a complete kind of revision of the history of a group called NWA, a rap group called NWA, uh, most well known for uh, you know their kind of iconic single, which was um, "Fuck the Police." And in the film, they're talking about all the reasons why a young African American might feel like saying "Fuck the Police" uh, because of the kind of racially discriminatory 
um, completely uh, unethical and disrespectful ways in which the police interact with people in this community. And with good, if anyone has kind of seen what happens with Daryl Gates and uh, with uh, uh, Rodney King, we understand exactly what was kind of policing was happening in Los Angeles at the time that they were saying fuck the police. At the same time, they advocated violence against women. Uh, they were incredibly misogynistic. Uh, they talked about women in ways really mainstreamed misogyny in hip hop. And those very same police were the only intervening force between women of color and the type of men who were saying, fuck the police. And so it becomes this layered, complicated situation. Now to talk about it in the actual, in the city of Newark, we have this problem with policing, which has been under uh, federal investigation. The Department of Justice just uh, announced this consent decree. Uh, and they're concerned about all sorts of things that have been going on with the police and their interactions with the community. The number one kind of category of call that the police in Newark get are domestic violence calls. And so there are women who are placed in a horrible position of saying that um, you have to choose between dealing with the violence of your domestic situation and dealing with the potential violence that comes if you invite the police into your home. Um, it is a horrific dilemma that no one should have to have, but I think gender throws all kinds of monkey wrenches into our facile analysis of, oh, this is just what needs to happen. Um, it places people in this very untenable position uh, that we have no idea really how to navigate, I think. I would also just say that uh, domestic violence, experiencing family violence in the home is a criminogenic factor later on. Mm -hmm. So if you want to prevent street violence, addressing family violence uh, is, a, is, a, is an important way of doing that. So you know, all forms of violence are, are interrelated. And uh, we can parse them out to some degree but we always have to be mindful of the connections. Just on that last point, it's also about the ways in which the state responds to violence because 75 to 80% of women serving time in the nation's prisons have been victims of sexual assault or violence. And many of the women who are convicted on violent crimes are sometimes acting in self-defense against people who have abused them, but just wanted to make that point. Um, I guess my larger question has to do with the fact that, for me, it seems like part of the root problems of so many of these failed policies, especially of the last half century, has to do with the fact that the people who are charged with making the decisions and creating programs in communities that suffer from high rates of reported crime are removed from these communities. So I'm wondering, we haven't talked about this so much um, in this conversation, but how do you see, for me, it seems like we can't really achieve meaningful change of all the problems that you've both um, beautifully highlighted today without empowering communities to have a voice and say over things like police departments, over social welfare programs. So I'd be interested to hear you know, how you see community voices being included in these discussions as we 
approach this criminal justice reform moment, both of policing but also um, of our prison system and reentry programs. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll begin. I mean, I think uh, on almost all of these issues, it's always a story of partial, incomplete progress. So you know, we've made progress. Uh, the you know, our nation's criminal justice practitioners, particularly our police, are more diverse than they ever have been. Uh, we have more uh, people with diverse racial backgrounds. We have people who are better educated. We have police chiefs with PhDs. Uh, and that's all, uh, that's all good news. Uh, right alongside of that is the news that we are, have so much farther to go um, in, in those areas. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, police and criminal justice institutions working with communities is not a new business. Uh, we've been, you know, and, and actually Harvard through the executive sessions on policing mm -hmm. has been promoting this since the 1980s. Uh, uh, but I think understanding how to do it uh, is a real challenge. We have in the audience uh, Reverend Jeffrey Brown, former, uh, uh, former leader of the Ten Points Coalition. Uh, Boston is a city that actually has done this uh, remarkably well and has sort of, you know, after a you know, pretty brutal racial legacy in the 70s, uh, beginning in the 90s, turned it around. And there are places like LA, we just heard about their uh, uh, legacy, that have made enormous, uh, enormous progress. So in some ways, uh, I, th I think it's important to not sort of have a uh, uniformly positive or uniformly negative view, view of criminal justice institutions. Some are performing better, some are not. What we want is among the 18,000 law enforcement agencies, we want to be singling out uh, you know, the heroes and the villains. And so we want to be, uh, we want to be talking about uh, you know, uh, what uh, Commissioner Billy Evans is doing right in Boston, saying, I want a lot of interaction between my cops and the community. I don't want a lot of tickets. I don't want a lot of arrests. You know, that's a very powerful statement to send to your rank and file. Similarly, we have to highlight the Fergusons and hold them accountable. One of the things uh, that frustrates me about um, issues of uh, police use of, use of force is uh, the, the, the absence of good data. Uh, we have no idea whether you know, police use of force is increasing, de decreasing, whether, uh, you know, whether there are regional differences and, and all of these things. What I always, if that sounds too wonky, imagine this. Imagine if we had use of force data across the country and we could identify the 10 best police departments and the 10 worst, and journalists were writing about it. It would be an enormous incentive to police departments to uh, to you know, uh, to act appropriately, um, and I think one of the other interesting things about this um, too, when we talk about kind of community voices in this, is it becomes really complicated uh, because there are um, there are a ton of white people who get shot by police <laughs> in America, in the United States. Like we generally have a lot of uh, police use of force, and that even the data that we have now. Uh, has been the Washington Post did uh, uh, um, compile this data, and the Guardian, which is you know a British publication, which is telling, 
um, compile this data as well, is that we have kind of open source information on this. And uh, to Thomas's point, there's a shockingly small degree of coordination among those 18,000 police departments or law enforcement units in this country. They vary wildly uh, in terms of what their procedures are and best practices are and so on. Uh, and then when we kind of layer into that uh, the you know, ways in which the uh, war on drugs has promoted a particular type of policing uh, that has kind of, and when I've talked with officers about this, uh, I've had officers say, do you, do you think I don't know that like, what I'm doing is making the problem worse? Because like, there are people who are three pay grades above me who are making the uh, decisions. We're calling the shots here. He's like, but you know, one cop said to me, he's like, you know, I used to come in this community and I'd speak to people and you know, they'd speak and now I come to the community and people spit when I walk down the street. And he said, the war on drugs has everything to do with that. And I think that those things kind of go into this idea of um, kind of community and you know, what people have to, uh, what voices have to be at the table. The other thing that I will say is a kind of slight tangent is that when we look at this, this country, and we have talked about this, we've talked about African Americans uh, a lot today, but there are a hell of a lot of violent white people in the United States. Um, and we don't, we don't notice it because of the black people. But if we took all the black people out of the country, which I'm sure there's some people at a Trump rally who are saying, okay, you got my attention, keep going. Um, what next? It's like, but if we all left, right, theoretically, and went back to Africa, as, they've, you know, as I've been told on more than one occasion, people would notice that like, there, are, there are a lot of violent white people. We're more violent than most Western European countries, by a considerable note. And so we'd say, well, what is this about? It's about something that is much bigger than simply race. We can't simply get out of it. We can kind of absolve ourselves or kind of have the conversation that we think is easier by talking about black folk um, in the same way that, as another tangent, Clarence Thomas sexually harassing Anita Hill allowed us to talk about sexual harassment, even if the majority of people in the government who were sexually harassing people were white. Um, but we could have that conversation because we felt like it was a safe distance and we could just say what's going on among those people. I think a similar phenomenon happens with violence um, in this society and we don't even notice it um, because of the way that we have like the magician's trick, you know, look at what the Negroes are doing while the other hand is doing something else. Okay, a lot of hands, so let's try right here. Hi. I won't get into the details because there are a lot of experts here on mass incarceration, uh, but as you know, uh, the majority of the people who are in jail these days are uh, of, of, of color, so to speak. And there has had a lot of implications about disenfranchisement and all. But regardless of the policies that are uh, in the future, uh, a lot of people are going to come out with uh, lack of ability to hold employment and inability to vote and a lot of other things. Uh, what is your, uh, well, both of your perception of that? And I'm looking at you, Tom, because you apparently supervised that Attica prison up there in New York uh, where violence was rampant. And some of those people eventually are going to come out and join the community. And so I have no sense as to what the future looks like for this population of disenfranchised people. So, uh, so is the question how do we rehabilitate people as they come out? Right. So I think um, 
so uh, based on the research that I've done, and I just completed a sort of pretty comprehensive review of, of the evidence surrounding violence reduction, including reentry program, uh, there's a very interesting uh, dynamic uh, in rehabilitating uh, offenders, uh, which is essentially if you um, focus on the thinking and behavior of the riskiest offenders, uh, we actually can make great strides and can make significant reductions in recidivism. But if you focus on the lowest risk offenders and you ignore their thinking and behavior, uh, we actually don't have much success at all. So what does that mean in, pra in practice? What that means is when uh, either community corrections or uh, prison systems focus services on the lowest risk people, the people who are easiest to work with, we're ineffective at reducing recidivism. And in fact, we make them more likely to recidivate. Mm. Offering services to people who are low risk often makes them worse, not better. So that's sort of a surprising fact, but it's been reinforced by many, many studies. The second thing is that when you offer services, resources, employment, training, housing, all of these different things, and you don't offer along with it strategies to help people think differently and behave differently from the behavior that got them arrested and ultimately incarcerated, a lot of those programs are not effective. So for instance, community-based job training with no cognitive behavioral component, not effective. That might surprise you because as Father Greg Boyle has told us from LA, nothing stops a bullet like a job. Well, not if the program is not evidence-based. And the same thing is true for arts programs, music programs, all of these different programs. It's not that they don't work, it's that they have to also address the underlying uh, thinking and behavior. Many of the people who are coming out of prison have been through a tremendous amount. They've experienced trauma, they're hypervigilant, they have negative attribution bias. They think every time someone bumps, in, uh, bumps into them that they're trying to provoke them. You have to deal with those things. Or as soon as you put someone into housing, they get into an argument with a, room, with a roommate. As soon as they get the job, they get into a dispute with their boss. And so that's sort of the interesting thing, is that we have ways to reduce recidivism outside of uh, uh, correctional settings, and they work, but it has to be done the right way. I think that one of the other things, um, and in Elijah Anderson at, um, uh, is it Yale now? Yeah, Elijah Anderson at Yale has talked a great deal about this, is the circumstances in which violence actually makes sense in a certain kind of way. Uh, that people who are in environments where, where they are hypervigilant uh, it is because they are in places where hypervigilance is really crucial. And so in some way we're concerned about kind of behavior modification and we're trying to get rid of the symptoms without saying, well, you know, you are also in a place where wherein violence is important. When people say, well, violence doesn't solve anything, unfortunately sometimes it does. In particular circumstances, you know, it does. And in terms of the kind of policing, I think one of the other things that makes it more complicated is that there are people who are invested in the wrong kinds of policing. I mean, I say invested, I mean financially, monetarily. 
So we can't have a violence reduction force at the same time that we have a force that is responsible for mass incarceration. Uh, we have mass incarceration. Every single one of those people got arrested. And the problem is very many of those people got arrested for things that a white person would not have gotten arrested for. Uh, and those two things can't coincide. And so if you have someone who, like in New York, uh, would stop and frisk, you're saying, okay, we've stopped you and we're you know, taking this marijuana, we're arresting you for it. Um, but if you were in a neighborhood, if you are in Bed-Stuy, that happens. If you were in Park Slope, which is you know, majority white and kind of gentrified community, there's a guy who comes home from work and has a bag of weed in his pocket and no one's going to ever know that because he won't be uh, frisked or, or arrested if it's found. That you can't have that kind of thing. And for the people who are making money building prisons and people who are making money supplying services to prisons and all those other kinds of things, um, and not to sound conspiratorial, but what we call bad policing has worked pretty well for, for, for people at some points too. So those kinds of ideas uh, until we can better make the, the point that what you're talking about, we're creating a caste, an effectively social caste that is unemployable um, and left with only crime and violence as viable options for survival, until we make that point more effectively than, hey, we can make lots of money incarcerating folk, I think we'll wind up with the same sorts of problems. So I think we've reached uh, an area where we actually have agree uh, reached the ten percent where we might not agree. Mm -hmm. So I, I would just I point. You were disagree with me about that. <laughs> so I mean, first of all, uh, you know, private prisons, private probation, I think is a, a really pernicious thing. But it's also, yes, we agree on that. It's also important to just keep the scale. It's it's much more sort of popular and prevalent in the South and in, the, uh, and in somewhere areas of the Southwest. It doesn't, it's not responsible for sort of, a, there is not a national privatization issue. Coming from the Northeast, we don't have those policies. That's one point. The other point is the National Academy of Sciences has looked at this very carefully. Bruce, our own Bruce Western here at Harvard was, uh, you know, uh, led the production of that report. We have higher rates of incarceration because we chose them. We voted for them over a period of 40 years. Uh, not to make money, uh, but because for a, variety, uh, for a variety of motives, we voted for politicians again and again and again who did that. Uh, you know, and, uh, that. And that group includes all Americans, not just Americans of different, uh, uh, of, you know, not just white Americans. Although I think there's been some really interesting discussions about uh, to what extent uh, African American leaders and, commun and communities have supported sort of tough on crime measures. The, you know, the black Republicans, uh, your work. recent op-ed in the New York Times. Uh, oh, did you write that op-ed? I love that op-ed. <laughs> I was emailing, like, I burned up all kinds of, like, uh, internet wire, kind of sending that out. Yeah. Right. But there, so there's nuance. So, you know, uh, the Congressional Black Caucus, I, I don't know if you agree, was presented with a really difficult choice. They really wanted to do something about crack cocaine in, uh, in the 1980s, and they were given, you know, at the end of the day, they were given a very imperfect solution, and they voted for it. When we talked about the crime bill, the crime bill, and by the way, I think, I think that the crime bill has been 
uh, much maligned because the crime bill also created the Violence Against Women Act. It also created community, uh, it also, you know, popularized community policing. It often also sent millions of dollars into evidence. But, you know, African American leaders in Congress, again, wanted lots of prevention, wanted uh, address, ad addressing issues for root, uh, root causes. They lobbied for that. They fought for that. Ultimately, conservatives stripped out a significant amount of that uh, from the bill, and they had to make a, a tough call. So I, I think there are, I think that there are, there aren't a lot of easy answers here. And what I'd, I, I hope is that we can have a sort of more collective understanding, collective responsibility of, uh, 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 for that. So just one quick, one quick kind of um, response point. I don't think that we can talk about the monetary incentive for incarceration and start in 1970 or 1965. Uh, we have to start in 1865, mm. you know, um, because uh, I mean, David has written about this um, in his history of the convict labor system, where he said that in the aftermath of slavery, when people realized that they no longer had a labor force, and uh, when you were looking at these people who have two-thirds to three-quarters of the total assets in the South being human beings, and then all of a sudden you don't have those assets and you have to find a means of producing something, the incarceration system has its roots there. And I don't think that there's necessarily a smoke-filled room with a bunch of people with cigars, um, but I do think that intuitively people understood that there are uh, the ways in which this, this works, the chain gangs you know, that emerged from there and have set the, the template. Uh, and so I don't... Um, and for the African-Americans, I think that they are placed in that same sort of situation. When people have said uh, that African-Americans you know, supported the crime bill, uh, I think it's very similar to the dynamic I just talked about with women who are in the domestic violence situation, where you are confronted by two threats, really, and you have uh, really no good choices in it. Uh, but ultimately, we're looking at the history of the 20th century and saying, you know, the conversation about what works, there are much bigger things that work. Uh, there are much bigger things that you know, the creation of suburbs and the Fair Housing uh, the Association, the Federal Housing Administration. Um, that this is, this is uh, by the way, our, our telephone conversation right, after yeah, our yeah. fight. We're probably going to get a drink and talk about <laughs> it more after. Um, but I just think that these are things that, that wind up kind of being in a much longer narrative. What were you going to say? One more question, and I think you've had your okay. hand up for a while. But they will be here for a while afterwards. Okay. I think. Great discussion, first of all. Oh, wait. Oh, oh. Mike over there. Oh. Great discussion. Um, just to give a little history, I was on Columbia Rough House as a rapper in 1992, played with Public Enemy and other people. I now do policy research here at Harvard Kennedy with David King. Um, I've seen my shares of gunfights. I've pulled people down when bullets were flying, and now I'm here in Kennedy School. I don't see much of that. The one thing that... <laughs> Stick around for a Yeah, thankfully. <laughs> the one thing that I keep kind of, well, I focus on this, so maybe the guy with the hammer is always looking for a nail, but she's talking in some ways about representation. And I think what, what I think is unusual being here at Harvard, especially at the policy, is that a lot of representation here gets left out of the discussion. And one of the things that, you know, I don't have a dog, I don't have a cat, but the number one whitest job 
in the United States is veterinarians. So they're 95%. So you probably know a veterinarian, probably white, probably female. There's a job in the United States that actually has a higher percentage of white that they didn't list in the Forbes article that I read, which is the US Senate. The US Senate's been white since 1865 and before. It continues to be that way. What I think is really interesting is 150 years ago, they figured out why. And it's a mistake. It's a democratic mistake that allows this to happen. Um, and so I think it's really important to look at these policy institutions. <coughs> Excuse me, I had too much coffee today. <laughs> um, and talk about representation uh, and ways to increase representation strictly by switching how we vote for the Senate. Tomorrow we'd have more women, 12% blacks, 17% Latino, mm. tomorrow. And when we talk about funding, that would certainly matter. When we talk about respect of an institution, I think that would matter. So I think it's really important to look at these little things. Like, and I, I just wonder if you have any comments about representation, how we might be able to change that. Well, having spent most of my time shuttling between you know, DC, New York, and Boston, yeah, absolutely. Uh, those regions would all benefit from a more proportionate, uh, you know, uh, from a proportionate uh, uh, representation in the Senate. I, you know, I don't think that's probably a near-term uh, solution. I, I think it's a, I think it's a, an important, uh, I think it's an important point to make politically. Uh, and I, Godspeed on that. But I think it's going to be a long, long struggle. Yeah, I think that. Um, I mean, we could have a whole conversation about that. But one of the the group that I'm always talking about their work um, everywhere I go, which is the Reflective Democracy Campaign. Uh, and they uh, did a study, they released a report about a year ago, uh, the uh, Who Leads Us report. And what they found was they added up every elected office in the United States, everything, from the presidency down to the local school board, uh, and anything that you can run for, and discovered that the whites are 63% of the population, they hold 90% of the political offices. And so the other 37% of people who fall in the category of people of color are squeezed into 10% of the political offices. Um, and for white men, who are I think about 37% of the population, they hold 71% of the offices. Not surprisingly, black women were the least represented um, in the kind of political demographics. Uh, and so there are lots of reasons for this. Uh, one is simply the difficulty still of getting white voters to vote for candidates who don't look like them, um, which still remains an obstacle. We, even post Obama, Obama got 42% uh, of the white vote the first time he ran it and 39% um, uh, the, the second time. So that is still something that happens. Does that mean Democrats never get the majority of the, the white vote anyway? But Nonetheless, the mechanisms by which people identify candidates, uh, they do the same thing that people do in employment and hiring, which is that they call up their friends. They reach out to people who were in college with them. They uh, talk to their neighbors, all of whom tend to be white. Uh, and the mechanisms by which people are able to fundraise. Like, there are all these sorts of things that are baked into how people get into elected office, and it replicates a, a set of biases that are there now. Uh, and without, like most things, 
without an active attempt to remedy it, it'll simply continue to replicate itself as it has done pretty consistently um, throughout that time period we've been talking about. I, I would also just say, uh, in terms of sort of immediacy, before I focus on the Senate, I would focus on the House, eliminating ger gerrymandering. Uh, if you're, I mean, I, I don't mean to be partisan, but if you're a Democrat and you're not thinking about the 2020 census and making sure that you have state officials who are looking at that, uh, you could be seeing, a, you know, a repeat of what happened in 2010, where despite the fact that, you know, uh, most people, when polled about issues, sort of uh, think about th support democratic policies, and Democrats are a majority in the United States. You don't see that in the House of Representatives, and the reason is uh, gerrymandering. Yeah. Okay, so we are out of time. If we could just have a round of applause for our, our panelists. Um, thank you, thank you both so much. And, and just before you go, I would love it if we could, um, I'd, I'd love to thank our, our sponsor, the Ash Center, but also our co-sponsors, the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy, the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research, and the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. So thank you. And if